All right, so we're moving on with the third lecture on iron deficiency anemia. And I want to start with something that a listener pointed out to me in an email after the last lecture. And that is an article from the American Journal of Medicine in 2005. And the article is titled, Low-Dose Iron Supplementation Was Effective in Older Patients with Iron Deficiency Anemia. So if you remember from the last lecture, I said, I am not going to tell you exactly what I do for oral iron replacement because I'm not sure it's any better than what you do. And this randomized controlled small study of about 90 patients, and they were all older patients, all greater than 80 years old, showed that we really have to take a lot of things into account when we decide what is the ultimate dosing of oral iron. And that conventional dosing, 150 milligrams a day, and I'm talking about elemental iron given in a day. So if you were going to give 150 milligrams a day of total elemental iron, it's not surprising that the side effects of that dosage would be worse than giving 50 milligrams a day or 15 milligrams a day. And in this study, they looked at all three of those dosings, 150 milligrams versus 50 milligrams versus 15 milligrams of elemental iron in a day. And while the follow-up period was rather short, meaning they only followed up these patients for 60 days, which probably is not long enough, and that's one of the many criticisms of this study, it was interesting to note that whether you got the 150 milligrams of elemental iron a day or 15 milligrams of elemental iron a day, the hemoglobin levels really did not differ between those two groups at the end of 60 days. Again, the dropout rate's pretty high if you go with high-dose iron. So what we may want to be doing is starting with lower-dose iron orally, and if it's tolerated, then we can move on to the higher dose and higher frequency of iron. And then there is some interesting science going on out there and also some interesting debates about iron where if you take it and you are orally absorbing it, you may put out some inhibitory mechanisms, some effects that keep you from absorbing more iron. And so some people are talking about spreading out the iron dosing even to every other day. And therefore, there is a lot more to be written about oral iron. So let's transition now and talk about IV iron therapy because if you really want to avoid the gastrointestinal side effects of oral iron, you give it IV. If you want to make sure that your patient is actually taking the iron, you can be pretty much assured they did if you gave it IV. There are certainly other benefits, not the least of which is you will have a more rapid correction of the hemoglobin. The anemia will correct faster, as will the symptoms that are associated with iron deficiency anemias. But again, getting back to the first lecture, the costs are higher with IV iron, but more importantly, for me, it really depends what setting I'm seeing the patient in. So now in the hospital, when I diagnose iron deficiency anemia, I pretty much exclusively replace it IV if they have IV access. Otherwise, when I'm in the clinic, you know, to 
take someone's time to go to an infusion center and check in and parking and the cost and the personnel involved, I still do prescribe oral iron in many of those circumstances. Another reason why I am using more IV iron is not only some of the new formulations, which are a lot easier to use than iron dextran, which I was using early in my career. I am really interested in some of the new data that has been coming out about intravenous iron. And I don't think a lot of this data has gotten the attention it deserves. And this was really my whole point of doing the last two lectures, was to get to this lecture so we can talk about some of this stuff. Because I first want to mention a very important article, in my opinion, that came out in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings in January of 2015. So the title of this was, The Safety of Intravenous Iron Preparations, Systematic Review, and Meta-Analysis. Now I know whenever some of you hear meta-analysis, your eyes roll. But as the authors of this article point out, it is for exactly this reason why randomized clinical trials in themselves are not the best tools for examining rare clinical severe events. I mean, unless we're going to do huge randomized clinical trials, which let's face it, probably is not going to happen with ivory iron, not on a degree where we do for congestive heart failure and coronary disease. So we need to use meta-analyses in these situations to get the best possible data we can from the various randomized trials that are out there. And so there is a lot of things we can learn from this important meta-analysis. First is that with these new irons, you don't need to do a testo. So when I was giving IV iron dextran, it was kind of a pain because I would give a testose and we would have epinephrine at the bedside just in case somebody had anaphylaxis, which by the way, never happened. I have been a physician since 1999. It's 2016. I probably stopped using iron dextran last year. And during that entire time of about 16 years, I would make the nurses give a testose, wait an hour or two, then give the infusion. It was an all-day event to give IV iron, and yet none of my patients, thankfully, had anaphylaxis. But it turns out probably the fears of that were overblown, even with iron dextran. But it is clear with most of these new formulations of iron, no testose is required. Now, please do not get me wrong. What I am not saying is that you're not going to have any severe reactions with IV iron. Just about any IV drug that I know about can cause a severe reaction. So please be on the lookout for it. What I'm saying is that the amount of severe reactions that happen with IV iron is not so significant that we need to be putting everybody through test doses before we give them the infusion of iron. Now, if you are still using IV iron dextran and maybe your hospital or your country, um, that's all they have on the formulary or can afford, maybe you still should consider giving a test dose. But again, with the new formulations, the experts are saying we don't have to use a test dose. So when we are not using a high molecular weight iron, such as iron dextran, what we have found in this meta-analysis is that when we are looking at severe adverse events, the incidence is less than one 
in 200,000 dosages of IV iron. Now let's compare that for a second to what we are trying to avoid. And we are trying usually to avoid giving packed red blood cells to these patients. If we do give packed red blood cells, it turns out that severe adverse events happens about one in 21,000 people who get an infusion of packed red blood cells. But it is the following point that I found very, very interesting from this meta-analysis because when I pick up patients from some very smart colleagues of mine, they say they did not start iron therapy because they were worried about the risk of infection. Now, there is reason why they are saying that. And there was a previous smaller meta-analysis that showed there was an increased risk of infection with IV iron. And there has been this understanding mechanism of concern where iron in general may promote infection because it actually supplies the iron source to pathogenic bacteria. And I believe I got into that a little bit with oral iron and gut bacteria that may be pathogenic in acute infections. So those rather rare exceptions aside, it is important to note that in this meta-analysis, and this meta-analysis looked at 103 trials, and then they were able out of those trials to find infection data from 32 trials, they did not find an increase in any infections with IV iron. And it may not just be that they had more trials in this meta-analysis. The authors also talk about that with the new iron formulations, there are lower free iron concentrations, and therefore that may also lower the risk of getting an infection. So that's all theoretical, but whatever the reason, I think at this point in time, so when we're talking about IV iron, particularly with the newer formulations, we cannot say that we are increasing infections by giving IV iron. And again, getting back to one of my earlier lectures, I can't say that's necessarily the case everywhere. Meaning, if you have Plasmodium falciparum malaria and you're working in that country, IV iron or oral iron may be a problem. And indeed, we may find other exceptions to this rule when we don't want to give IV iron. But for the general patient on a hospitalist or critical care or other service in the hospital, I think saying the reason why we're not giving IV iron is the fear of infection is overblown at a minimum. And so far right now, I don't have any fear giving my patient recovering from pneumonia or a UTI IV iron. It's clearly not the first thing I do when they come in with those illnesses, and usually I haven't diagnosed the iron deficiency anemia for a day or two anyway, so it's often when they are recovering. And I'm not telling you that it's well studied in a patient flaming out with sepsis in the ICU who's clearly not recovering that you want to give them IV iron anyways. In that case, if the anemia is very significant, and of course we need to keep in mind the TRIC trial and conservative 
blood transfusions versus liberal blood transfusions and so many other settings. And I've already gone over that um, in detail in previous lectures on anemia. But in severe settings, we can't wait for an iron infusion to work. So in those settings, we have to give packed red blood cells. Now, by the way, that brings up a very important point. So if you give one unit of packed red blood cells, how much iron did you just give? You gave about 200 milligrams of iron and obviously multiply that by how many units that you gave. Okay, but let's say we're now at the point where we're pretty certain we do want to give IV iron whether it's after packed red blood cells infused and you still want to give more IV iron or you're just giving it for the first time, which one should you give? And the meta-analysis from the Mayo Clinic proceedings said the best formulation is they don't know because further research needs to be done and we need to start having head-to-head -head comparisons of IV iron to know which formulation is the best. And while I myself have now moved away from the high molecular weight iron dextran, I am not certain which formulation I should be recommending. So I am not going to recommend a formulation of IV iron. I know which one I use because I'm comfortable with it, but it would be nice to have some big head-to-head -head comparison trials. Now that being said, I think it's also important to note that most likely all the formulations, whether you're using ferric carboxymaltose or iron sucrose or ferric gluconate or even low molecular weight iron dextran, remember I was talking about some concerns with high molecular weight iron dextran, but low molecular weight iron dextran or other IV preparations with the exception of high molecular weight iron dextran that the frequency of serious adverse events at the moment seems pretty comparable among most of the new products out there. Clearly if a patient did have a bad reaction to one product I wouldn't use that product again and try and switch them. And again, it seems that a lot of the patients who have had adverse events with IV iron, it often was the high molecular weight iron dextran, which apparently is becoming harder and harder, if not impossible, in many areas to get. So for a lot of places, particularly U.S. hospitals and several other countries for that matter, it just may be a non-issue. Yet one thing that does remain an issue is cost and often there are formulary considerations and regional reasons and maybe a hospital or an infusion center has special deals worked out for certain formulations or products and those purchasing agreements obviously will influence your practice. Otherwise, it would be nice to have some big head-to-head -head trials, but I'm not holding my breath. And to be honest, it's probably not the most important trials in the world that could be done these days with all the other things that need to be done. But when smaller trials have taken place between the products, and this has particularly been the case in the patients who get the IV iron on a regular basis with hemodialysis, for instance, there's been some trials with ferumoxetol versus iron sucrose, and they've been 
fairly similar in the rates of adverse events and in the rates of raising the hemoglobin level. So that's that. Now, what do we do when we want to give IV iron as far as replacing it? How much should we give? And that is sort of a trick question because are you just trying to treat the anemia or are you also trying to fully replace the iron stores? It also matters what you consider success in regards to what hemoglobin concentration you are aiming for because that determines what the true hemoglobin deficit is, meaning it's often 14 minus the patient's hemoglobin concentration. So if the patient has a hemoglobin of 8, you do 14 minus 8, and you've got the hemoglobin deficit. Anyway, without getting too complicated, because you're not going to remember this anyways, you're looking at the body weight in kilograms, and you multiply that 14 minus the hemoglobin, and then you multiply it by this 2.145, and that helps you figure out your hemoglobin iron deficit, and then you add whether you're trying to replenish the stores or not. So the point being is you then need to know the concentration of elemental iron in the specific parenteral product that you are ordering to use. Which brings me to a more basic point than calculations, which is you can just take the product information of that product and they usually will have lookup tables for that product based on the patient's weight in hemoglobin levels that will tell you how much to infuse. This kind of reminds me of insulin where you can do all these calculations on someone who's never been on insulin before for how much long-acting insulin to give them if you've never even given them short-acting insulin before. And by the way, I mean, while I'm advocating doing that, I'm just telling you in practice with iron and insulin, a lot of times the physician is pretty good after many, many years of treating patients and can just look at somebody and say, based on this BMI and how high their sugars are, I'm going to give this much insulin. And the same thing kind of goes for iron. So there's a lot of people that just use a fixed dose. Maybe they give 500 milligrams or 1,000 milligrams. But one thing that I will say is that you don't really want to go above a thousand milligrams because it's probably not clinically useful. And I almost always split up my infusion, so maybe it's just because I'm a wimp and I give 300 milligrams for three days in a row or two days in a row based on how anemic the patient is. And also it really does depend on the product being administered because some products you can give a total single dose of a thousand milligrams of elemental iron and others it's not suggested. There are some amazing experts out there in infusing IV iron, and I am not going to count myself as one of those, so please listen to them on important science and opinions that they have regarding how much iron of which product to give and how quickly it should be given. And that brings up the point of how fast should we infuse IV iron, and you probably noticed that the nurses give it really slow, and there is some reason behind that you can get a rate-related infusion reaction. And a lot of times this was misinterpreted. So people would say, oh my gosh, you're having anaphylaxis because one of the things that you feel or several of the things that you feel with these rate-related reactions is you may have myalgias as well as chest and back discomfort. So a lot of times people have treated that with things like adrenaline 
and antihistamines. And then they have all the bad reactions from that, right? They're super tired and their heart's racing. And now they are convinced that they had an anaphylactic reaction to iron, thus giving IV iron maybe a worse name that's not totally deserved. Now, I do want to talk about a special population that can have a bad reaction to IV iron, and that's those with an inflammatory arthritis, so your patients with rheumatoid arthritis. They can get a flare of their arthritis from IV iron. Now, I don't know exactly the reason why this happens. I think it's just not totally understood. Probably some sort of oxidant stress. But anyway, with this patient population, it may be very reasonable to pretreat them with a glucocorticoid and then continue it for, I don't know, three or four days afterwards just to keep that flare from happening. With everybody else, I shouldn't say with everybody else, but with the majority of the population out there, pretreatment with glucocorticoids and antihistamines in people who have never had a bad reaction to IV iron, it's really not recommended by the experts. If there are patients with true multiple drug allergies, you may want to consider glucocorticoid treatment or pretreatment, I should say. And likewise, some patients with severe asthma, there's considerations for glucocorticoid pretreatment. Of course, any patient that develops severe strider, cyanosis, cardiac or respiratory arrest, you do need to treat that with adrenaline. So give IM epinephrine immediately for anaphylaxis. Start your usual resuscitation. Give lots of fluids. Get them in a critical care unit. And do give that patient glucocorticoids after all that as well. But that does not mean we should always be overacting to mild reactions. So there are patients that are going to have itching and flushing and some chest tightness even and maybe some hypertension. And as I said, their back may ache and their joints may ache. But that doesn't mean we go full board if they're doing okay with the rest of their vitals and don't seem to be in severe distress and they're wheezing and they're oxygenating okay. For those patients, a lot of the time you can just stop the iron infusion for about 20 minutes or so and then often restart the iron infusion at a low rate that same day. You know, a lot of times you will give glucocorticoids in that circumstance. But a lot of people think the use of antihistamine should just simply be avoided for most, if, if not the overwhelming majority of people having bad reactions to iron. And the reason is that we all know the problems with the antihistamines. As I say, you get really, really tired from it. But other than the somnolence, you know, antihistamines, they cause the problems with tachycardia and sometimes diaphoresis. And a lot of times we start thinking that the reaction that we're seeing from the antihistamine is now an anaphylactic or severe reaction from the iron. But whatever you're called with from the nurse who says there's a reaction going on, I mean, first, stop the iron infusion just until you know what's going on. And two, try and go see that patient to try and determine if it was a minor reaction or if there was a major reaction going on. All right, well, so much more could be said about iron deficiency and the treatment of it. But after three lectures, I think it's time to move on to a new topic. So we'll leave it there. You've been listening to Dr. Gil Parat. Until the next round, adios amigos.